Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, April 13th, 2020. We are still in this hellhole. My name's Joe. And this other voice is Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we doing here today? Joe, we're going to go ahead and talk about all of the news that's fit to record and talk about. We are going to look at a variety of topics from a number of angles, trying to keep good faith discourse as our ultimate goal and try to keep our audience and ourselves adequately informed. Yeah, we like to think that when we talk on a subject, we know at least a little bit enough to maybe talk about it in a public format. Um, But we know we're only human. We don't know everything. We aren't experts. We aren't on the ivory tower. We we don't have PhDs. Um, So watch out for us. But anyway, Evan, what do you want to talk about this week? So if anyone has been listening to this show, or even if you've just heard my name in passing, you probably know that I care a lot about film. And, oh wait, did I just, did I just red pill you here? Did I blow the cover off the whole scam? I I thought that was in next season. You just ruined it for me. Ah, spoiler alert. Okay, go back. The big reveal. Spoiler alert, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the ways that I like to express this in my own identity is to follow the Oscar race and to follow awards season. But as we know, due to the coronavirus, a number of movie theaters, almost all movie theaters in the country have shut down, which means that new movies are not being released. They're being delayed and they are perhaps off the calendar entirely. Now, As Oscar rules currently stand, films must have U.S. theatrical distribution to be eligible for Oscars. So, the premise of this segment is if the Oscars don't change their rules, and if theaters never reopen, what would the Oscars look like this year based on the films released January through March, which is generally considered the dregs of the film calendar. What would that even look like? Yeah, what 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 calls are the Oscar referees going to make? Yeah, you know, are they going to be going to throw some flags on those plays? Yeah. Are they the replacement refs? Oh, man, that's that's a sick ref, bro. I know. So (laughs) without further ado. Without further ado, here is Evan Kelly's projected best picture lineup if the Oscars had to happen with just the films that have already received theatrical distribution. They are, in alphabetical order, roughly alphabetical order, don't yell at me if I'm wrong, Bad Boys for Life. Oh, big contender. Yeah, Birds of Prey. The Invisible Man. Onward. Can't see him. Oh, onward. Oh. (laughs) Ordinary love. The photograph. The photograph. It's like a picture. Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, big contender. They even reworked it. I mean, lauded. 
Ooh. Yeah, those animators got no overtime pay, but they they get a Best Picture nomination in this weird alternate universe. Yeah. And finally, <laughs> The Way Back. Oh man, this uh, these are some top contenders. Oh yeah, I'm, gl- I'm just gl- I'm just glad Sonic made it in and Bad Boys <laughs> for Life. Yeah, so they were moderately acclaimed, and that's kind of all it takes to stand out in the first three months of the year. <laughs> what what a what a world um i love i love when stuff like that happens where through technicality a whole lot of mediocrity just comes in yeah like, like that uh the olympics when the Soviets i, I was out. just gonna say yeah. yeah um or you know the occasional oh yeah this person has been snowboarding for only uh like a year but they're on the Oh, whatever. The Chilean <laughs> snowboarding team. Yeah. So they, they're they in. But there's also a requirement that you have to, like, win an international competition or qualify or something like that. So I don't know how that works anymore, but it can happen, and I love it. Yeah, in the 80s, especially to incentivize participation among nations that didn't have as strong an infrastructure, they essentially waived those requirements of having to be internationally competitive. So you had some crazy guys. Like, do you, do you know about Ernie the eel? Is he the guy who did, uh, the, uh, long jump ski jump thing? No, that's Eddie. That's Eddie the Eagle. And he actually qualified legitimately. Um, but Ernie the eel was a swimmer from, somewhere in Africa. I don't, I don't remember the specific country, but he just got in solely on this policy that said that these countries could just take a representative delegation. And I mean, the commentators at the time thought it looked like he was drowning. It it was clear that this guy was not comfortable in a kiddie pool, let alone an Mm -hmm. Olympic swimming pool competing (laughs) on the highest stage of the world. Yeah. So, so Sonic the Hedgehog is to the Oscars of what Eddie the Eel was to the Olympics. Yeah, this 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 possible go around. I mean, we still have a we still have a lot of year left, but um, who even knows? Yeah. So I um, at at the end, I want to get into what I think will actually happen. Um, but anyway, um, we've got. Let's take a look at what some of the maybe above the line categories would look like. So film by film. So I think Bad Bad Boys for Life, um, you know, we could see Will Smith and who's the other guy? Martin Lawrence. I haven't seen it. Yeah. For the record, I haven't seen all these movies. I just looked at what was around. Um, But, you know, they they've got a lot of goodwill for their roles. So you could see probably those guys getting in probably. Well, they would more realistically be co-leads, but due to category fraud, they'd probably put one in lead and one in supporting. It's fine. <laughs> oh, man, the refs aren't going to like that. Oh, the refs are the ones who do that. It's bullshit. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, probably an adapted screenplay nod as well. Will Smith is the lead. Will, Will Smith is the bigger name, so that makes him the lead regardless of sc- screen time or narrative construction yeah it oh makes yeah sense. yeah yeah 
I, you know, and I've totally not seen the movie, but I'm already saying who's the lead. <laughs> <laughs> You're just as qualified as as many people who attempt the category fraud. So, hey. yeah, Birds of Prey. You got Margot Robbie. Everybody liked her, right? Um, yeah. Margot Robbie, lead actress. Makes sense to me. Um, Sonic the Hedgehog. Let's put Jim Carrey in for uh, supporting actor. Why not? He's yeah. He's overdue. You're the wrong guy to ask, but I don't think he's ever had a, an Oscar nomination, even though he's won like a billion Golden Globes, been in a lot of acclaimed stuff. But, you know, well, if I recall, I have nothing to recall because <laughs> he was in a lot of acclaimed roles, you know, Truman Show, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But the Oscars, they really don't like those popular actors who try to bust in. I mean, just think about what happened to Jennifer Lopez. Uh, it's happened to Adam Sandler this past year for Uncut Gems. Jennifer Lopez, of course, for Hustlers. Uh, Jennifer Aniston in the past for that film Cake, which I didn't see, but everyone said she was great in it, got all the precursor awards, and then was snubbed at the Oscars. So um, Jim Carrey, maybe if they maybe if they run out of everyone else, maybe they'll finally put him through this time. Do you think there will finally be in this environment some Oscar buzz? For that Kevin Hart movie that came out last year with Tiffany Haddish that had so many previews and looked so bad. Night School? I think. Um, I can assure you that even in this universe, that movie gets shut out. I promise. Okay. I promise. I'm going to talk with the refs about that. Okay. You I'm get gonna, them, get them gonna, on the line. I'm going to throw my red flag on the... <laughs> I'm going to throw the ra- or the coach's flag on the play. The challenge and, flag? Uh, yeah, the challenge flag. <laughs> All right, you're you're. It's under review, so now we got to sit in silence for two minutes while they make their ruling. <laughs> we, you can we edit it out. Do, yeah, yeah, we got to gesture that you know, like somebody's talking and like cover my mouth and shit and all that. I I love it. Oh man, yeah, this is off topic, but since we're talking about refs and replays, uh, the XFL shut down. Yeah, they did. Uh, that was. Uh, tbh that was probably going to happen sooner or later anyway anyway, yeah i know but it was great (laughs) while it lasted i watched um i i was able to go and spend a time at a bar where there was the xfl playing and it it was you watched hilarious watched some of that yeah i saw some of it because it was on at a bar while i was there and it was great. They were like interviewing players right after they had a bad play. <laughs> <laughs> just like one went wrong there. It's like, I don't fucking know. And they just walk off. <laughs> they, uh, there was uh, the game I watched. They, uh, one team was getting just absolutely blasted. And the quarterback was like, we need to change everything around. We need to be doing so much better. We need to completely rethink how we're doing this. And, we're, and then they, uh, they show shots of them in the locker room during halftime and nobody's doing anything like no coaches <laughs> talking. They're just hanging out. <laughs> and then it was totally the quarterback's fault. So they just put in a different quarterback. <laughs> Man, I, I loved it while it happened. If you get benched as an XFL quarterback, your career is over. Hang them up, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's uh, it's not working out for you. Um, so rip in peace XFL, but anyway, back to the, the Oscars, this, this segment has been full of tangents. That's okay. Yeah. We're getting our vitamin C the photograph. I I feel like, uh, Lakeith Stanfield and Issa Rae. This is another movie I didn't see, but 
people liked them in it, so I, I think they probably get lead actor, lead actress nominations, or, you know... You could, t- you could tell me anything about this movie, and I would believe it. So, basically, um, what happens is they find a photograph of a mosquito that's been encased in amber, and then... Lakeith Stanfield and Issa Rae decide that if they can extract dinosaur DNA from from that, the photograph fr- from the photograph, like, then they can so they they can make they did a CSI books. and they zoomed way in and they could see the individual DNA strands yes. on the photograph. They said enhance, 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 and then and they, they kept they going. were done. Yeah, yep. yeah. So that that might get in. Who's to say? Um, uh-huh. Original screenplay, sure. Why not? I think it could. Yeah, this it's a slim list. Um, all right, The Invisible Man. I think Elizabeth Moss is a lock, not just to get nominated, but to win Best Actress. It's a great performance. She's already been rewarded at the Emmys, and now she takes home Oscar gold out of roughly eight performances total. Um, Maybe if they're calling it an adapted screenplay, since it's technically based on the original Invisible Man, an adapted screenplay, you know, probably director is in play, and uh, it could could be a good time for for horror movies to get back in. And let's uh, let's throw in sound design. Yeah. I I know nothing about the movie. Let's throw it in there. Well, is it going to be sound editing or sound mixing, Joe? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to go for mixing. It feels like a mixing kind of thing. Okay, okay. Yeah. And you might say to yourself, or I might say to myself, I'll, I'll tell on myself, who the fuck can tell the difference between sound editing and sound mixing besides industry professionals? Like, why not just merge them into one award? And yet at the past Oscars, they split it. So 1917 got one of the awards and Ford v. Ferrari got the other one. So, you know, <laughs> fuck me, I guess. It fucked I, up my I, Oscar And picks. I like... And I like how you don't specify which one they got. Because I don't remember. One of them. I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't matter to me. Well, you see, in this one, the sounds are blended together. But in this one, the sounds are great, but they're in in individual contexts. Yeah. And like that, that is probably the technical difference. And I get it. But gosh, I think anyone who like not in a non-industry professional, someone who doesn't professionally do sound editing or sound mixing who tells you that they can pick out the difference when they're just sitting at the theater watching a movie they're a fucking liar so (laughs) now we move on to onward which by default it's like the difference between a dj and a mashup artist i don't know i don't know which on which end either one is but (laughs) yeah me neither so we're gonna move onward to onward which is a lock for best animated feature and original screenplay. It's a strong contender. Um, unfortunately, Oscar rules don't allow for animated voiceover performances for recognition in the acting categories, which I disagree with. And on my own award show, the Evies, I have nominated voice performances before, and I would likely do it again for onward. Um, best original song. It's got a win. You carried me with you by Brandy Carlisle great song probably gonna win in this universe and now we get to the way back this is the comeback vehicle for ben affleck all the trailers looked horrible and yet 
they were able to actually squeeze some really positive reviews out of it. So I think Ben Affleck is going to get in for lead actor. It's going to get in for screenplay, probably director. And this is going to be like the Irishman of the year where all the old guys are like, that was a film. I liked this. And then all of the film Twitter is going to be like, I don't get it. Now, now, who's going to win the Oscar category of Jim's pick? Ooh, that's tough to yeah. say. Yeah, well, I need to, we need to invent this category. Just, uh, yeah, we got to find a Jim. And, well, no, Jim is more of a construct. You know, it's like Oscar, you know. Oh, there. <laughs> in the beginning, there was some guy named Jim and he had this taste. But now we have construed that there's a there's the idea of Jim and what he likes. So it's like that best popular film category that they thought about introducing and then everyone hated it and they backed off. Yeah, just call it Jim's pick. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners of this podcast, you've heard it here first when the Oscars introduce a category that without context is called Jim's pick, you'll know why. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to lobby heavily to the Academy for Jim's pick. They can choose the terms even. They can do whatever they want. I just want Jim's pick. You know, you'd have more luck lobbying the Evies, so let's see. <laughs> Evan. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can choose the terms. Whatever it is. I just want Jim's pick. Alright, Jim's pick. I'm making a note of it. And alright. Check back in December. Um, it, it could even be something uh, as stupid, like a you know, it's just a different name for best uh, ending credits or some shit like that. <laughs> like, so yeah, I'm serious. Remind remind me about this. I will. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We'll, we'll flesh it out. We'll flesh it out. Yeah, yeah. Under development. Um. So then the last the last of the best picture contenders is little uh, independent flick called Ordinary Love. I think this is. This is that one where everyone hasn't heard of it before, you know, like Hell or High Water was a few years ago. Um, you know, just that that indie that gets enough traction to get through. And I think you've got Leslie Manville for lead actress, Liam Neeson for lead actor. Although I could see them trying to fit him into supporting actor just for category fraud purposes. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it was a good movie. And the acting performances were great. Maybe maybe Manville could give Elizabeth Moss a run for her money. Who knows? Joe, what do you think? Who 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 you got? Manville or Moss? Hmm. I'm gonna channel Jim, and uh, I'm gonna go with Moss just because I know her. That's true. You do know her from West Wing and such, and Mad Men. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we got it all figured out. In we reality. We should host the Oscars. The Fuck, we would Oscars. be great Oscar hosts. Because it would be like a, would, like an odd couple thing. Like, I know all the movies and you've seen like two of them. And so we can play <laughs> off of that in our banter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you do the, you do basically the uh, Andy Samberg opening to that Emmys. He hosted it. It's like, I've seen every movie. And, <laughs> and then I'm like, I have seen, I, I, I watched the thin blue line again this year. This is what I did. You're like uh, when when Hugh Jackman hosted and he did his opening song, and it's like the reader. I didn't see the reader. That's gonna be you for all of the movies. <laughs> didn't see it. Didn't see it. Didn't see it. Didn't see it. <laughs> 
So realistically, what I think is going to happen, if the theaters reopen, then obviously, you know, the Oscar movies will be feeded in, will be fed into the situation as normal and we'll have a typical Oscar season more or less. But if the theaters never do reopen, one of two things is going to happen. Either the Academy is going to change its rules and say, listen, all those movies that were released to VOD instead of being in a traditional theater screening, we're going to make those eligible. And then you get movies from streaming services looped in that otherwise might not be eligible. And you can have a more or less normal Oscar season. Or if the Academy isn't willing to bend that rule, and they might not be because the Academy and the film industry cares very deeply about preserving the theatrical experience. And if they amend their rules to say that the, that the theatrical experience is no longer mandatory in order for a film to gain recognition, they risk undermining their position on the importance of theatrical exhibition. So in that case, what the Oscars might do is suspend the ceremony for a year and then say that any films that would have been eligible for this past year, essentially the eight that I listed, are now eligible in the following ceremony. And that's not unprecedented. The original Oscar awards took place across different years. You know, Emmys and other awards don't have a, a strictly January to December timeline. So that, I think, is something they might consider as well. Obviously, canceling the ceremony and losing out on the TV deal. Well, I guess they have the TV deal in place, but I guess it would suck for the network. Um, all this is to say, it would be a tough decision for them to cancel, but it might be what they want to consider if they don't want to give up the ghost on the theatrical exhibition requirement. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. You're, yep, so. you're, you are now promoted to the lead disaster strategist for the Oscars. All right. You know, my cousin, my cousin's wife used to work for PricewaterhouseCooper, not in like the group that handled the Oscar stuff, but still it's kind of cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So Joe and I are going to be the hosts for your next Oscars whenever they happen. New award, Jim's pick. And best picture is going to be, uh, you know what? Uh, Onward. Onward's the best picture. There you go. Oh, sorry. You read the wrong cue card. It's bad boys for life. You know what? It would serve me right. It would serve me right. Because we're bad boys for life. So, is Joe. It, is it? Is oh, it oh you got more. You got life, more. Okay, okay. The third one. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> I haven't seen any of them, so. But yeah, well, they, they they sprung for the four in the title, so that I guess there's not going to be a fourth one. You know what? Who knows? They'll they'll find a way. Life finds a way. Sequels find a way. It's just what it is. What if they keep going with the numbers, like in Bad Boys for Life, and then it's Bad Boys Five Ways to Hell or some shit? Like, yeah, they just they just skip over the three, but they want to keep the increasing number motif. Yeah. 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 Actually, that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what do you actually want to talk about? Oh, I want to talk about something so boring, so unbelievably boring. But 
it's something um, that's very precious in this era that we live in. Um, you know, like we've been talking about, the coronavirus has been happening. And I, I suspect we're going to talk about more <laughs> about it more later. So, but here's uh, one aspect that is, I mean, somewhat related to the coronavirus and somewhat related to how governments and other institutions do their business. And it's this idea of institutional memory. I know it's a... It's a real banger of a phrase, but it all comes down, you know, if you have a job and you've been there a while, you've participated in institutional memory. And what it is, is that when people work together to uh, work at doing stuff that has a similar goal or, you know, whatever, they... Through that process, they solve problems and they learn a lot of lessons from how they solve those problems and when they encounter them. And then over time, they gain this knowledge about how to interface with issues that come up without having to reinvent the wheel every time. So when I'm, you know, like at my job, they're, you know, over my tenure there. There are plenty of problems that I've learned how to solve and I've taken lessons from those. And because I've taken lessons from those, when we encounter those issues again, I'm able to more easily uh, deal with them just because I've encountered them before and I have an understanding of how they need to be handled. The way this comes up in relation to the coronavirus is that there are um, the countries that are in Asia, so not necessarily China, but this can be roped in with China. Places like Korea and Japan and, uh, yeah, Korea and Japan, where they, in the, I believe it was the late 90s, they dealt with SARS, which was a respiratory illness, not too dissimilar from the coronavirus. And because those governments had to deal with SARS in the past, they have the they have an institutional memory of how to deal with an upper respiratory illness in society. So because of that, these governments are much better equipped and are fighting the coronavirus at a in a much better way than United States and most of Europe who haven't in the past had to fight an upper respiratory illness that is highly contagious and could be possibly deadly. Because of that, you know, countries like the United States and Italy have had a high number of deaths, whereas in Korea, Japan, and, you know, even in some cases China, where it started, there have been relatively low numbers of deaths and they have been better able to contain the spread of the contagion. And this, you know, there are plenty of things that the United States has done wrong. And there have also been, uh, there has been a unwillingness to keep on the people who are experts at this issue on the government payroll you know, keeping the experienced people around to be able to deal with this when this happened, you know, most notably 
President Trump getting rid of the pandemic response team. But, you know, there society has dealt with many things over its history and different parts, you know, different uh, civilizations, different countries, different nations have dealt with all sorts of issues. And there is knowledge out there of how to deal with it. Not every time a country or, you know, anybody comes across some situation, is it truly novel? So this is why I like listening to experts and historians and all this stuff, because almost everything that has happened to the human race has happened before. And you can learn from that, even if it doesn't directly tell you what to do, it can certainly tell you what not to do or what to consider. So it's not I don't have a big whole thing or a smart take on it, but institutional memory is something that's very important. And I don't believe it's as well prized anymore, especially in when we live in this world where um, where people switch jobs pretty readily, where they, you know, jump ship, you know, at this, you know, first sight of new pay, which I mean, is completely reasonable. I'm not faulting anybody, but this is why, uh, you know, people who have continued to be employees, the senior people, this is why they're better to have around because they know how to do things. And this is for all facets of society. Having people who know what they're doing is very valuable and how to, you know, instead of having to spend resources to reinvent the wheel every single time you need to get somewhere, you could just have someone who knows how to do it. So that's my little spiel on institutional memory. I don't know if there's even a conversation to be had, but do you have anything, Evan? Yeah, I do. So this is something that makes me think of when people say drain the swamp, you know, people think that the problem is, oh, the same entrenched bureaucrats who have been in these government agencies for years and years. What I think of as the problem with the swamp, if you want to call it, is actually the revolving door between people who control and regulate industries and then people who are in those industries. That to me is problematic. But when it comes to the tenured bureaucrats, those people aren't the problem. Those are actually some of our most valuable resources. People who have worked within a system and an institution long enough to understand how to get things done is irreplaceable in a crisis and right now we're seeing the consequence of not having that framework in place well then also like a whole lot of the uh, united states uh, bureaucracy is filled with a lot of political appointments which is just crazy like in other countries the um the kind of bureaucracy the state is kind of its own entity where the uh, the legislative bodies decide what goes on, what it does, but doesn't, you know, it isn't confirming people to go to it continuously. It's not, you know, having the prime minister, or the president appoint people. They have their own vetting processes and all this stuff. But in the United States, when you elect a president, you also are electing someone who hires on 4,000 people to lead the bureaucracy of the United States, which is a area where uh, the president can have a whole lot more influence than people would think. 
uh, these appointments are very, very important and it can determine how the government reacts to things. And if we have someone like Trump who doesn't believe in those actions and just decides not to hire anyone, then you run into, you know, it's like we, oh, we had never run into the problem where the president just didn't want to play. <laughs> like, it would, it would almost be like baseball. It's like, what do we do if one of the teams shows up and just doesn't play? <laughs> like, what do we do? do? Do we call it for the one team or is it a one? Is it a, is it a draw? You know, so um, we're running into that. But institutional memory is, uh, is very valuable. That's why you know people who stay at a certain job for a long time are valuable because they know a lot. Um, you know, it only becomes an issue because normally when you know a lot, you uh, expect greater compensation for it, and greater compensation can be expensive. So, um, I also want to use this as a plea to. Um, I I know a lot of people who are very pro term limits, and. I don't, and I'm anti-term limits, especially for like legislature, um, because one, you could vote out the people, you could vote them out. They're not in that position for forever. But then also, there is a certain amount of institutional memory that needs to take place in order for people to uh, be able to legislate effectively so knowing the procedures of the committees knowing how to work with the gears of the government to get a good bill written knowing being in the loop long enough to know the issues to know what needs to be done how to talk to certain people in order to gain their support for certain things it's all very valuable and if you put term limits on legislatures like you know, make it so that they can only serve two terms, then then you're just getting a new group of people in there every few years who doesn't quite know what's going on, no direction, and doesn't isn't able to as effectively do what they need to do. Now, sometimes maybe the argument is that some people get too good at their job and they can do a Mitch McConnell and just realize the true potential of all the rules to get nothing done but otherwise i see it as mostly good yeah i wholeheartedly agree aside from president which i think is too powerful a position not to have term limits the term limits don't make a lot of sense to me if the constituents aren't happy with their representative they can vote them out and in the meantime as joe was saying they can keep a lot of that institutional memory another problem i think with term limits is that if you have a situation where someone knows that they can't possibly be elected again then their shift they have to shift their focus away from doing their job and start looking at their next job and so term limits for legislators to my mind actually incentivizes bad behavior it creates sort of a moral hazard if we tell them, well, you can't get elected anymore, so go off and uh, go into the private sector. And by the way, you know that while you have the power to regulate the private sector, so don't abuse that power. Okay, thanks. Yeah, it, it's uh, with kind of president and maybe governors as well. 
those are positions that are high enough and you know in some ways infer enough clout that they're for the people who hold them once they are voted out of office they aren't too worried about what the next step is Mm -hmm. um they're going to be offered jobs or you know in the case of president you're going to have a stipend or you can go on speaking or you know there isn't too much of an issue of what's going to go next a president will make more money in one speaking engagement than they make in the entire their you know a year of presidential salary yeah so that that isn't so much of an issue but most legislators i mean even you know on the federal level or on the state by state level if they are i mean this is even an issue now where the job is seen as a stepping stone to be able to do something that's more valuable, oftentimes lobbying. And if you are creating a pipeline where people are going to get booted out automatically, then that's just going to be a lot of them, a lot of people trying to get a very limited number of jobs and trying to set themselves up to uh, get them as good as they can, because they can't go and do a speaking engagement and get what is effectively a year's worth of salary. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody's willing to pay to do that. They, they still have to worry about how they're going to make money. So they, uh, they are incentivized to possibly do things and uh, make it more amenable to possible employers. Yeah. Yeah. Quid pro quo. Alrighty, so the the main subject, which is potpourri, um, uh, current events grab bag, if you will. Current current events. Um, so somebody will get that. Like two people will get that. It's gonna be great. I love it. <laughs> I get it, and I love it. Um, so after last week's episode seemingly everything happened in relation to it the day after so uh the wisconsin primary happened it was called off and then reinstituted yeah so i can't remember if when we recorded last week the supreme court had made a decision like the supreme court um but anyway the supreme court decided that there could not be an extended deadline for vote by mail or absentee ballots, whichever you want to call them. And then on Monday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, handed down a decision that it uh, that Tony Evers move to make an executive order to uh, postpone the election was unconstitutional. So this led to there being an election last Tuesday in Wisconsin. And funny enough, we won't know the results of it until tomorrow, which is or today when you're listening. (laughs) Um, So this is another beautiful thing. So just imagine we have some commentary about the results and uh, the, the nature of that. Um, one thing that I learned 
during the voting day was that this this election was not just a primary for the Democratic nominee for president. On this ballot were some real elections. One of them notably was for the Supreme Court of Wisconsin. Uh, one position was being filled, which I beforehand, you know, even when I was filling out the ballot, I didn't even realize like, oh, the Supreme Court voted by the people, which just feels weird. Um, it, it seems weird to me, too. Yeah. And and it's partisan, even though it's not formally partisan, it's totally partisan. Um, there was a uh, Republican aligned judge and a Democrat aligned judge. And, you know, I've, I ended up voting for the democratic aligned judge before I even know it was truly the democratic aligned judge, (laughs) but I got so many as a, uh, someone who votes in Wisconsin, I got so many texts and phone calls from every democratic organization in the state checking in on me to make sure I was voting and turning in my ballot. You know, there must be some, I saw something I got mailed about like my absentee ballot. And it's like by voting absentee, you uh, open your, your uh, information up to a whole lot of organizations who can see that you got an absentee ballot and boy, did they try and contact me? (laughs) Um, uh, So I ended up, I, I could have put the ballot in the mail. It said it had to be postmarked, which, you know, that's something old world that I don't know about. Um, but I was able to just turn it into my county clerk and have my vote be counted that way. So it was a fiasco that took place right after we recorded the episode that talked about it. So... Today, when this releases, we will know who won the uh, the Wisconsin primary, but um, in some ways, we we don't know, or it doesn't matter, Evan, right? Yeah, because as much as it pains me to say it, Bernie Sanders has suspended his presidential campaign, in effect, ceding the nomination to Joe Biden. Yep. Joe Biden is the de facto presidential nominee for the Democratic Party for the 2020 general election. Well, who knows if that election is going to happen, but that's a uh, cause for alarm and a battle to fight further down the road. But um, yeah, that uh, part of it, it seems, is that... um, in this era of coronavirus that you really can't campaign under these conditions and it would be dangerous to campaign even. I mean, there was, uh, Bernie was doing a bunch of Twitch streams with people, but I mean, that's, uh, that's not a traditional form of campaigning. And it's not playing Um, to his strengths. I mean, the bread and butter of Bernie's campaign was large rallies with huge crowds of people packed shoulder to shoulder into venues and that ain't going to happen right now in addition you know 
I think that he made a very strong argument. I watched his live stream of his presidential campaign suspension and something that he highlighted was that in coronavirus relief, he has an important job as a senator to try to craft bills and gain support for bills. And that's going to take a lot of time and energy. And he's going to set his sights on that to make sure that, you know, the the U.S. doesn't collapse. And part of that means he doesn't have time for a presidential campaign right now. And it's rough to hear, but I respect the hell out of that line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that that was always the, you know, I don't, you know, since I, I know a lot of uh, people are deep supporters of him, don't want to quite, you know, since the wound is still fresh, don't want to quite go into it. But um, that was the thing about Bernie is that he was such a, a uh, somewhat pure of heart person that um, that he always seemed to be living his life to and his ideals what's uh, best for people and what could uh, he believed was better for society and for all people and that that was it's very laudable. You don't get too many people where you could say that in almost every circumstance. And, you know, I think that was a big part of his appeal for people our age is that, you know, there is the, uh, you know, you get tired of seeing all these people who are, um, you know, you're supposed to believe are good people and they do, you know, they do things that go cut against that. And, you know, they have scandals that show that maybe they don't believe that in the way that they say they do. They change Whereas, their rhetoric and beliefs based on the vagaries of the political climate at the time, you know, that kind of stuff. And Bernie has been rock solid since before myself and many of us were born. So, um, yeah, a lot of people found that very admirable. So, and yeah. it's still who he is. So, yeah. Um, so we have, uh, Joe Biden being the presumptive nominee and, um, you know, who knows it, um, it's kind of too early to say what the circumstance is going to be. Um, there, there has be definitely been a lot of stuff on Twitter where people have been, uh, very crit. I mean, it, the, the man deserves to be criticized on things, um, like I, I tend to take a more favorable view of him than most, but I still believe that there are some things he needs to answer for. But it's just, um, it's going to be a long road ahead. You know what we have gotten through. Um, you know what kind of polling and results we have gotten from uh, the primaries that happened in kind of the, the, <laughs> the kind of in between world where that that weren't the first four states and then weren't affected by coronavirus. Um, he seemed to be winning in high turnout races and winning over support of white uh, white voters without college degrees and black voters generally, which seems to be a winning coalition. And uh, according to a new 
uh, poll cut that came out recently is that he's plus 13 on over Trump with voters over 65, which is uh, surprising. So things are, I, I would, I, a cautious optimism that things are looking good, but you don't want to go full in on it and then get disappointed. So here's what I think. I think that Joe Biden is a horrible candidate, full stop. I think that the number of obstacles that he has, things that he could be attacked for, is a mile long. You know, sexual assault allegations, cognitive decline, spotty voting record, lack of an understanding of the shape of the modern world. And I think that in any normal context, he would get absolutely clobbered mano a mano against Trump. But the one thing that I know, and this comes from uh, Democracy for Realists, is that people kick the dog. When the economy is bad, they vote out incumbents. And Trump's handling of the coronavirus has been inept. And I don't think that we're going to experience meaningful economic recovery before the election as long as it takes place as scheduled. And that is Biden's real opportunity is just to capitalize on people reacting to an economic downturn. Yeah, so um, I believe that Biden needs to keep doing some of what he has been doing. So recently he adopted some of the positions of um, he took on Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy uh, plan as one of his own positions. And then he also adopted uh, Bernie Sanders college uh, tuition plan under his wing. And this is what I believe is the strength of Joe Biden is that he seems to be able to build coalitions in order to enact change. Now, some people are critical that he may be too willing to give things up to uh, get those coalitions to build things. But I am. It's let me see. Let me how, how should I put this? He is trying to pull a big coalition together to get a government together. I believe that, you know, on the kind of institutional memory level and the bureaucracy of the federal government, I'm pretty sure he would be able to put together a very competent government who is able to um, attack the issues on hand. Now, maybe does he have the biggest uh, mind for the positive vision of what should come next? Maybe not. But I believe that he is not as much of a ideological stalwart as people like to believe. And if there is someone else who can carry the intellectual bandwagon or put together a vision that can get a coalition of votes through the Congress, then I'm pretty sure he would go along with it. Now, let me tell you, though, if Joe Biden, if, if part of his strategy as a coalition builder is to try to bring in the Bernie wing, he, he's going to fail miserably at that. The This kind of piecemeal approach is, in the mind of the most fervent Bernie supporters, wholly inadequate to address the 
structural failures of many of these countries key systems and you know coming out and saying i support medicare for all at age 60 it kind of feels like a slap in the face and i'm just saying if that's if he thinks that that is the way that he's gonna get people on board and make us excited for joe biden i mean gosh he needs a reality check well i mean you're saying he needs a reality check what could he do to, I mean, it just seems like in the whole sphere of things, you know, people have tainted, you know, uh, has um, tainted from the beginning the the fruit of the uh, the poisonous tree, you know, that I, I mean, I had, I laud him for trying to reach out. But I mean, I think that some people just aren't going to be persuaded and I don't know <laughs> how much more he could do. <laughs> And that's fine, but then let's not give him credit for being the guy who's going to reach out and bring everybody in and everybody's going to vote for Biden and it's going to be a great fun party and he's going to adopt all the liberal causes then. Well, if he's tr- I, I find value in trying to win them over, even if he doesn't. Trying to work with people is a, something that I see as noble and laudable, even if it doesn't get them over. So... I'm not and sure he, I agree with that. I think it has to be a, a meaningful gesture, and I haven't seen that. Not at all. And I, I, I feel like I, I've seen it, but, um, and I, and this may also just get back to what we were teasing out last week or the week before, where, um, you know, you want to, or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I take a more pragmatic approach to policy and or uh, policy and or political goals where I, you know, piecemeal, you know, a little bit better is better, even if it's not the big structural change that needs to happen. And through Biden, I see a, you know, good amount of piecemeal stuff that can happen. And even if Bernie was the nominee, I don't even know if the big structural change would have happened. But well, hold on, let's because because this kind of bifurcates the conversation because there's the conversation of will I vote for Joe Biden, and there's the conversation of do I think that other sub- Bernie supporters will vote for Joe Biden, and the answer to mm-hmm. the first question is yes, and the second is no. And yeah. so, what, what 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 strand do you want to pull here? I don't know. <laughs> Because, because, yeah, of course. I, okay, here's the thing. I've wrestled with it a lot. And like I said, I think Joe Biden is a horrible candidate. And I think that what you call piecemeal to me is half-ass. I think that he is going to run up against a brick wall and ask for crumbs and end up getting fractions of crumbs. And I don't see a Joe Biden world as the antidote to the problems that I see in the world. However, we we have to look at the real differences. The world under Donald Trump is a world in which we have the active undermining of people having health care coverage in this country. The world under Joe Biden is we get shitty little patches on a broken system. I agree that that's better. And I am willing to vote for that amount of better. But 
when you're trying to look at people who are deeply ideological, people who truly believe that the world is on fire and we need a huge quantity of water to put it out, Joe Biden is saying we're going to spray it with a little squirt gun and hope that's enough. And when people think the situation is that dire, that is not persuasive to them. Yeah, but I, I you know, I don't find it persuade. I mean, I guess it's what to me is I don't find persuasive in that worldview is that a Joe Biden and a Trump presidency are the same thing or that by electing Joe Biden, somehow it hurts the cause for a future uh, greater leftward shift in the uh, politics, which I just don't see. Well, that's and tough. And so, I... and I, you know, I, in some ways, you know, I want, I want the big structural change, but it seems to be in the, you know, in the realities of the world that it doesn't always happen like that without a political revolution that just doesn't seem to be happening. Now, maybe, you know, maybe the, those people don't vote and, you know, maybe it will be fine because, you know, I have a hunch that a bunch of people who, um, you know, have these views. I mean, there is a whole bunch of Bernie people who said they wouldn't vote for anybody else. But then that they're a small enough part of the coalition that maybe they won't be the deciding vote. But then, oh, yeah, this it just doesn't seem like the greater conditions for a huge major change of things are coming together. I mean, maybe it will after this. Um, this whole thing is over when people face a whole lot of hardship at a level that hasn't existed before. Um, but I mean, hell, even when Obamacare was passed, you couldn't even get the whole Democratic coalition in to get a public option. Now, we, the Democratic Party has moved to the left since then. But then again, I don't know, even know with, you know, even if there are 51 senators and you get rid of the filibuster, how much further you would be able to go. But that, again, those are different arguments. Yeah. Um, and to respond to the idea that voting for Biden is somehow, you know, uh, inimical to the progressive movement, I actually agree with you there. I think that there's this popular imagination that we're all going to stay home and not vote for Joe Biden and it'll finally show them. We've been trying forever, but this time we'll finally show them and they'll, they'll, this time they'll get that centrists are bad and this time they'll come over. And I think that that is definitely rooted in fantastical thinking as opposed to reality. So I agree with you there, but it, it just comes down to a matter of degree. Like I said, I will be voting for Joe Biden as much as I don't like him. Um, but let's say your car is broken. It's smashed up and it's destroyed. And you have one guy who wants to set fire to the car. And you got one guy who wants to change a flat tire on the car. There's a lot of people who believe that that is the, an accurate depiction of what their choice is with Donald Trump 
and Joe Biden. And again, if we're looking at, the, if we want to be realistic, Joe, Bi- it is incumbent upon Joe Biden to persuade those people why changing the tire is better or meaningful at all in a car that won't run anyway. You're looking at young people who don't see the future as hospitable for them. And it's not their job to be persuaded. If Joe Biden is really such a great coalition builder, he can reach out and enact meaningful steps to prove to them that he will be able to fix something meaningful. Yeah, I mean, but it, I mean, in in your analogy with the car that is broken, I mean, at that time, it may only be that that is, you know, fixing a tire that may be all the resources there are to have that car. You know, there aren't enough people out there who would, you know, uh, maybe your insurance says, you know, it's not going to you know, fix the damage or buy you a new car. You just have to deal with what you have. And, you know, will it fix everything? No. Will it be at a better place than it was beforehand? Yeah. And I don't know but if anybody... But it still anybody, won't run. But it's better. <laughs> and I don't I don't even... Th- it, it, the, our society is still running. I mean, it's not effective. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of woes for a lot of people. And I'm not trying to laugh that off that they're not issues, but it just seems to me that I'm more convinced that progress, you know, tends to be a slow bore until there's an opportunity, uh, you know, an extraordinary opportunity to do more. Now, maybe we're at a spot where that opportunity is going to happen due to the coronavirus. Who knows? You know, there's the phrase, never let a a good crisis go to waste. And then there's also like the, there's like a Milton Friedman idea that it's like, Oh, what gets enacted in a crisis is whatever, uh, ideas are lying around. So there is a lot more talk about the ideas put forward by Bernie Sanders and more progressive people. And I have a belief that maybe if this crisis gets a whole lot worse then there is a possibility that they could get adapted into the democratic mainstream. And if they win power that they could adopt them. And I don't see Joe Biden as being a hindrance to that. Except that he did, and this has been blown out of proportion to a degree, but he did express reluctance to sign a Medicare for all bill, even if it was passed. So I don't necessarily agree with you that that Biden is going to become a rubber stamp for any progressive policies that the Dems might be able to I get mean, through. To, to me, what I see in that is as a positioning tactic to um, because part of what led to um, Joe Biden being elected, I mean, at least what it seems to be of winning the primary is that there are a whole bunch of people out there who are more centrist who came out and voted, people who didn't vote in the Democratic primaries before, who are voting on they want a return to normalcy. And uh, it may not be a politically savvy move for Biden to say he wants to blow up on the whole system, 
even if it turns out that a uh, that a presidency or administrative administration of his may take steps that are closer to that than just the status quo. So your claim is that Biden is is secretly a progressive? What? Where where are you drawing this from? Where where's that coming from? I, because I, it doesn't. Because here, it, it seems like Joe Biden's. I don't think his i his call for a presidency is ideological. I don't see it as him putting forward a definitive plan for what needs to be done. It's more. This isn't a uh, referendum on progressivism. This this election is a referendum on whether they want Trump in office or not. And through Joe Biden, there is enough cover and uh, belief that he is a um, just staying the status quo, where if the rest of the caucus or the rest of the, the Democratic establishment or the, you know, the legislators and all this stuff, if they are able to move in a direction that is more progressive, have bigger ideas, are able to do bigger things, that he wouldn't put a stop to it. Because sometimes there's just machinery that has to move in the background. Machiavellianism is a thing. And like this is one thing that just felt I felt with Bernie, not to get too deep into it, but while it is very laudable that the guy stuck to his guns through the whole career, and very much decided a, a single path of doing things that made sense in his eyes. It just felt like he wasn't willing to play ball a little bit in order to help gr- uh, greater chances of making his um, his presidency a reality. Like, now, see, I don't. Uh, maybe within the presidential spectrum, but I, I don't think it's fair to categorize Bernie as this maverick who wouldn't work within the confines of our government he was not the guy who would sit out important votes for the democratic coalition now that is that is true i i i respect that part of bernie but it it seems like in his presidential bid like when it was looking like he was having a good shot at possibly winning the primary all of a sudden he's he um starts bad mouthing the party that he's trying to win the nomination of. He started calling out that he was going to make them like, I mean, he, they're going to have to watch out because he's coming for them. And it just seems weird that in a primary where you're trying to win the vote of a party, you call out the party. And that, that just, it just felt like I get why he has wanted to stay away from being part of the party because um, he didn't, you know, they made a lot of concessions on things, didn't believe that it was true to his brand or his morals to be part of the party. But he also decided to run and be part of it and just couldn't even do the basic step of just being, uh, you know, I mean, if he's trying to be the standard bearer of the party, he's still going to be part of the party. And if people think he's going to be hostile to them, then it's a possible, you know, they may not want to vote for him or want him to be in office. Well, I'll concede that that may have been a political mistake, but he's always been in an awkward position attempting not to run as a spoiler, but to genuinely take the mantle 
of half of the ideological divide in a polarized system. So, you know, it that that's a situation where I feel like his hands might have been tied to a degree. I mean, I mean, as a senator who does thing, you know, is fighting for these causes and all that kind of stuff. I can, you know, no problem with that. You know, if he go and if he goes in and votes when it's critical to make things happen, that's one thing. But when he's running to be the president and be the nominee of the party, you can't be vying to be the ultimate insider while claiming to hate the party with. But I don't see it, it as, as Bernie wanted to be the ultimate insider. That was just the only avenue available to him as an independent, you know, a left-leaning independent without completely flipping the election over to the other side. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. It's just part of the game. Um, if he's going to run in the Democratic Party, it may not be great to um, dunk on the Democratic Party. And it just felt... And, you know, I still like the guy. He still has great views, and I believe he has a great vision for the world. But it just didn't feel like when he was running to be president that he was doing what needed to be done in order to quell. I mean, he won over a lot of people because of the revolutionary um, ideas, the big think that he's fighting for them. But in the end, it just didn't seem like he was able to quell the fears of the more moderate wings of the party. And he just never expanded his coalition. Now, whether that's through his fault or the fault of the outside, that's up for debate. But just as a flat statement, it just didn't happen. I do think that it is interesting that in the four years between these two elections the progressive movement could not find a similarly inspirational candidate in a younger newer package i mean uh, there was julian not, um, no <laughs> i'm just not really. throwing out any sort of name <laughs> Um, and then there was also the the Elizabeth Warren, but um, you know there there was all the hem and haws and back and forth with that too. So, um, I mean, as much as he wanted, as he put it in the frame of not me us, it sure did end up feeling like a lot of it was. I mean, the the Bernie show. Um, at least the way a lot of people reacted towards him. Now, maybe they could have found someone else who was younger, who could have bridged the divide, but um, it just didn't happen. So doesn't mean, I mean, he has largely won the, um, it, it seems like he has won the argument. I mean, the Democratic Party has definitely gone more leftward and they're at least... Um, it's, it's at least expected when they're, um, you know, talking about their ideas or, you know, their policies that they have to ask or, you know, at least provide some credence to the, 
um, questions the you know kind of progressive wing poses on issues and that's a good thing and it's it's moving in the right direction um so i i definitely think bernie has done a great service yeah i mean clearly i agree and i wish that it would have broken differently for him um i guess probably our biggest fundamental disagreement is over what type of president joe biden would be and that's really where the sticking point is yeah and uh i'm not as down trodden about it i mean i know very i mean this is going to seem hypocritical of me because very early on i was very on the anti joe biden camp you know when we first did our lists of candidates I put him at the bottom, mostly because at the time it felt to me like, yeah, he's old. He's a little outdated. He's not quite up for the task or I mean, he could be up for the task, but not as at an energetic level as you would like. And also the key takeaway was I felt that he would be a losing vote, that going with him, there would be no enthusiasm he would just win because the Democratic Party, you know, ham fisted him in. But they waited so long to um, settle on Joe Biden. I think uh, Ezra Klein put it well. It was it wasn't so much the party decided, the party settled, and it settled because Joe Biden turned out higher voter turnout in these uh, in these primaries. Uh, what was it? Voter turnout was up and Biden got a higher share of the vote than Hillary did. So I am not as fearful that he is as much of a dud as I had previously thought. Well, I, I don't necessarily agree with that under normal contexts, but for the, uh, for the climate that we're in you know it might just be that a a functional toaster with a blue d on it can can beat an incumbent in this economic climate so i don't know and i think there's also some question to um really think about is how i mean it it feels like this conversation sometimes happens but it doesn't happen as explicitly but how truly the the black vote is the how it's the the base of the democratic party how important that is and um that's part of why joe biden won the primary was because for first state with any sort of black population in it they came out handily for joe biden so um, so why do you think that is? I don't have a good answer on it, but it's indisputable that that's true. So so there was why? one account I read that was a I mean, it was a Facebook post, but I I felt like the inter- the logic of it was sound. And is that the black community very much values. I mean, I'll use the term the black community, even though it's a very diverse group of people. 
and really doesn't really need to be or shouldn't be spoken of as one unit, but for the sake of conversation, I'm going to say it here, is that Joe Biden, I mean, the Democratic Party is so important to many black voters. It is for a lot of, it seems to be for a lot of black voters, there is no question of which party they're going to support, whether it's between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. They'll vote for people who are in the Democratic Party because the Republican Party has been so hostile. They've been part of the Democratic Party for a long time. And there was some fear, you know, Bernie didn't even want to identify as a Democrat, an institution that is very important to the black community. And then also Joe Biden holds the place where he was vice president to Barack Obama. But the symbolic nature of it where Joe Biden was the party insider he had been in, you know, he had massed so much power. He was on all these committees. He was the big shot. But he dis- he willingly played second fiddle to a young black man who was smart and listened to him and actively uh, uh, championed the causes of Barack Obama. And through that gesture, just, you know, seeing someone who in many respects would have normally been uh, his superior, let the uh, junior senator from Illinois run the show instead of trying to take that over. Well, I guess I'm a little miffed because it kind of seems like it wasn't Biden who stepped aside and let Obama run the show. The the voters picked Obama. Well, the voters picked Obama, but... You could very much imagine some sort of White House where there wasn't the the strict cordialness of the Obama Biden presidency uh, or administration, where uh, Biden would try and be a little bit more contentious, try and you know try and sneak his way into trying to more shoehorn his ideas instead of just going along with Obama's. Um, and Obama could have picked. Um, anyone else to be it but joe biden went along with it and did it enthusiastically well the the broader point about party identity i think is cogent and i think that's largely backed up by the research that ezra klein has done about the importance of of group identity and also ultimately Asians and bartels in democracy for realists as well which just again returns to my question for as much as I love Bernie, why couldn't we have in the interim found someone who was willing to identify as a Democrat but still hold roughly the same views? Why, you know, I, I'm i not going to say that there weren't issues with the Bernie candidacy, but why did it have to be Bernie again? Why couldn't we have found someone to say the same things in a different way. I mean, Elizabeth Warren got pretty damn close to saying the same things. But she's still, you know, an old white person from the Senate. It it still kind of felt like 
just a a different flavor of the same brand a slightly different flavor well and i think this is also like because the more progressive side of politics there isn't a framework there isn't you know the democratic party is across the whole damn country and there are people within it you know there there are people being worked there are people rising to different levels of office under the guise of the democratic party there isn't a similar structure in place for more progressive candidates or ideas um in a in people who want to kind of claim to be an outsider like the democratic party will accept people who are very liberal um in it you can be part of the democratic party in that respect but they aren't there isn't the same cultivation of candidates who are like that um as there are people who are a little bit more moderate mm. uh, that i mean that's what i would suspect i don't i just don't think that there's an apparatus for bringing those people together or i mean there was um i believe it was andrew gillum in florida who ran for the for the governorship i mean he would have been a pretty strong choice um but i mean he didn't win the governorship so um you know when you don't lose the or you don't win the the you know the real contest i mean that was the fatal flaw of beto o'rourke the whole time (laughs) was like wait a minute you lost your senate bid and you're gonna run for president um and his enthusiasm was very much based on that single race and not so much a general beto enthusiasm yeah and the context of that race was important where negative partisanship and hatred of ted cruz buoyed him more than his actual body and he he benefited so much from out-of-state support as well that's that's where the real kicker was like ted cruz is such a hated figure within democratic uh politics that he could gain national attention by opposing ted cruz so um you know i don't know of who these people you know who the next bernie or the younger generation of bernie would be um you know there is you know uh the squad um but you know i i don't know yeah there's still a few uh few cycles away from presidential talks yeah but uh one thing that i also found that you know part of the reason why i'm more hopeful about the prospects of uh better change coming about from a democratic administration is that there are um one insight that i you know again from ezra klein everything's just going to be the ezra klein and this is going to be the uh this is going to be the Ezra Klein post show from now on. Um, <laughs> just talk about his ideas. Uh, and it was either him or Matt Iglesias where it was the idea that in a legislature, the agenda is a set by the, you know, the people in the safe seats and what actually gets done is determined by people in the vulnerable seats. And I thought that was an interesting idea. And the fact that, you know, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and 
uh, Rashid uh, Talib, and you know the squad that they're all in pretty safe seats and hold pretty liberal views means that the conversation is going to be pulled in a different, you know, more leftward direction because they're safe. They're going to get reelected and they can pursue whatever issues they want. You only run into the real issue of what can pass, you know, for the people who are in the risky seats. But um, the conversation has definitely changed. Well, the conversation's all well and good, and I believe in the Overton window, but I'm not going to rest easy until I see it reflected in meaningful legislative change. Yeah. You know, I think uh, some, you know, one part of what um, seems to really help the, like, Republican Party when they do things is that they don't, in some ways, they don't have to say the sort of unpopular parts of their agenda out loud or that people are voting for them for. They can, you know, they don't have to emphasize that. They can emphasize some culture war thing or mm-hmm. fighting with the Democrats when they really want to cut taxes for rich people. They don't have to come out and say, we have to cut taxes for the rich people. Um, because they are the kings just, of straw men. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just want to, I mean, maybe this is misplaced in my, um, you know, wanting to believe in the better nature of people, but I want to believe that if we're moving the conversation, that there is a greater possibility that the democratic party will be able to get these things done if they're given a little bit more cover and not have to truly emphasize the parts that are more unpopular with the greater populace. But then again, I don't know because the two parties are asymmetrical and the democratic party is more coalitional in nature. So the, you know, all the different parts have to, you know, have to be spoken to in order to trust that, you know, their be, you know, their needs are being recognized. So, yeah, yeah. So on that note, unless you got anything else you want to say. Nah, nah. So this brings us to the last little bit. Of we said we were going to respond to emails that we had gotten. So we have two. Um, the first one is from a Scott. And Mr. Scott actually uh, is responding to our episode, which feels so damn long ago about uh, Iran about the issue that had uh, come along after the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani. And he uh, he responded, it, it seemed like he had some firsthand, not, not knowledge on that assassination, but um, one part of the Iran history, which was the, let me pull it up here, I had it. Uh, which of my 10 windows is this in? <laughs> uh, 
I guess I shut that window down. But it was, oh, here we go. It was the U.S. shooting down of Iran Air Flight 655 on July 3rd of 1988, which was, happened during the Iran-Iraq War. Um, and I i didn't go back and listen, but I imagine the way that we, we cover this is an overstep by the United States uh, government in a way that, you know, was just way overstepping its bounds too much, you know, just as antagonistic as it sometimes is. But Scott wanted to provide the perspective that during that time, um, uh, the Navy and, you know, U.S. presence in that area, like as a, you know, historical fact, I, you know, the United States was not involved directly in the Iran-Iraq war, but was in the uh, waters near Iran and Iraq, protecting any uh, ships going through there. And through that had gotten into scuttles with Iran and Iraq. And um, Scott's perspective was that Iran had been, you know, antagonizing U.S. ships in that time, that there were uh, other, you know, smaller vessels who weren't on the same class as the United States, vessels but it could still cause some damage we're still occasionally exchanging fire and that um at the time when the plane was shot down you know there had been some back and forth uh fire that had been going i mean not between with the the uh passenger airliner but um with other iranian units and that the the you know at least the united states story is that the uh, passenger flight did not respond to any request for communication, and that's why they shot it down. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where maybe we, you know, with trade it's complicated, you know, protecting oil interests, um, making sure that, you know, trade was continuing to happen. But then again, you know, when you're there and you're being shot out, even if you shouldn't be there, you feel like you got to, you know, retaliate and, you know, it can be scary. So I'll recognize that. Do you got anything you want to say on yeah, Scott's? I, I just appreciated the added perspective, the added information that I hadn't previously been aware of. And I think overall that um, our coverage on Iran maybe wasn't as big as we thought it would be. I think even before coronavirus shut everything down, there was still not the escalation that we had anticipated. So mm -hmm. as we say all the time, we're not perfect. We're not looking out at the world through the ivory tower. And it looks like that is going to blow over. I, but I, here's where I'm a little hesitant on saying it's blown over is because we haven't reached the full time horizon on it yet. Um, you know, there was, I mean, when we uh, uh, originally overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran and installed the Shah, it, 20, it took 25 years to res for the country to respond to that. Um, so... And, you know, 9-11 was in response to bombings that happened during the Clinton administration. So I think the time horizon on this is still long enough that, 
there's a possibility. I mean, maybe not a full conventional military response to it like we were fearing at the time, but there is still the chance for um, uh, terroristic activities to come and seek revenge for the act. And that's certainly fair. I appreciate that. It's just that my memory did have us covering it as something that would lead to some immediate big blowback. Yeah, yeah. Like it, didn't the, it, it felt like it was going to escalate. There was going to be direct military conflict. We were going to be parach, you know, parachuting into into. Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the main city in Iran, um, Tehran. Yeah, parachuting in Tehran, fighting, but. That didn't happen. So um, that's good for now. And also Iran is also being ravaged by coronavirus. So I think everything's just on the chill right now. Um, But we'll see. Time horizon isn't up on what Iran will do. But anyway, Evan, you want to do the next one? So we also have a viewer question from our listener Emily and Emily wants to ask uh, and this is in response to the polarization episode she asks I know that there are more unbiased news sources but how do you prevent yourself from cherry picking facts or is it one of those situations where you try to be aware and kind of hope that you don't do it anymore what do you guys believe are new ways to prevent polarization or the furthering of polarization and I take sort of a in a, a bit of a different view on this because I think that to break out of polarization is very difficult. And in Ezra Klein's book, he doesn't really talk about stopping polarization or undoing polarization. I think he kind of assumes that people will always cherry pick facts. And so what we need to do instead is make sure that our democratic institutions can function within polarization. So that means doing stuff like ending gerrymandering and getting rid of the filibuster. And then on a deeper level, I think that one of the things we can do to make it so that polarization doesn't feel quite so bitter is to just act with more compassion and... I'm sorry if that comes across as trite or uh, idealistic, but that's just genuinely how I feel. I think that as we grow more polarized, we take it so personally and we can really end up being more venomous than we need to be. But I don't think that's the best way to be. I don't think that's the way that brings people closer together. And so I will, I will take this as another opportunity to call on people to be neighborly and show that sense of love and that sense of community to all of those around you. Joe, what do you, what do you think about this question of preventing polarization, cherry picking of facts and such? Well, I don't know about preventing polarization. I think polarization in some ways doesn't even like, It's something that happens in society that individuals may not necessarily have the power to curb themselves. Um, So I don't know if individual action is a way to do it. Um, But I will speak to the idea of cherry picking facts 
Now, there are some people who do this in bad faith. Um, you know, there are some publications out there where they have a very specific point of view that they want to get across. So they use the statistics that um, go against that. But I will say on back to an individualistic level, there is so much information out there that I can forgive people for only knowing like one thing. Like if you see a local news broadcast and they pull up one statistic about something and define it based on that, then I, I'm, I'm forgiving of people who only consume that one thing and think that's how it is. Um, the real way to know if something is cherry picked is to be um, a little bit more into it into uh, the subject matter than just cursorily knowing it or hearing about it. But that's a lot of effort that I don't think is reasonable to even ask of people because knowing politics or social science or what have you is such a big burden that we rely on so many institutions that have more expertise than us and assume that they know what they're talking about in order to know what we know. And if there's a breakdown in that, I mean, it's hard to blame that on the individual that just some sort of notion of, Oh, read media from both sides. Isn't quite going to fix. Yeah. We often find that people who read across the aisle and try to consume news that is ideologically opposed to their own worldview don't end up becoming more bipartisan, they just inoculate themselves against the opposing arguments. They're able to understand what the opposing argument is, and then they spend their time not engaging with it and trying to sort out the merits of it, but just thinking of their own counter-arguments against those talking points. Yeah. So, it's a, it's a tough subject. You know, I think the... It seems to be that in the old world, having access to knowledge was the real key to learning things and being a smart individual, but or a knowledgeable individual, not that being smart is necessarily just knowing things. But it seems to be in the future that and in the present that the real way to gain meaningful knowledge is not having access to it because we all have access to it, but being able to navigate it in a way that means anything. And that's a real struggle that, you know, society is having to deal with really for kind of the first time. You know, I, I said earlier in the show that there aren't too many things that human beings have run into novelly, you know, for the first time ever, but, in a situation where we are bombarded with so much information and conflicting uh, news and and reports and are eggs good for you or eggs bad for you, you know, it's just so much to deal with. And we're still learning with uh, what the tools are for discerning what is noise and what is signal and all of that. And we're you know, who are working through it day by day and we're all just becoming a little bit more scientific in our approach, it seems. But hopefully um, cherry picking data is kind of the least of our worries. But you got to watch out for people who are doing it in bad faith 
And if people can really respond in a, you know, in a true and thought out manner against it, then, you know, I tend to believe that if something is well thought out and the logic is sound, you incorporate it into your thought pattern, even if that's not how you choose to think about the world, knowing that other people think that can be very valuable. So, yeah. So there you have it. Well, uh, I think on that note, I think we're going to end it. Evan, you got any uh, closing thoughts? Uh, Thank you to everyone who is out there grinding through this day by day. Your work is valuable and, you know, whether or not you get that social reward is, is yet to be determined. But from my mouth to your ears, thank you. Yeah. So I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. And as always, my name's Joe Hicks. Mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. Da-da-da.